And tonight we're going to read from uh, 1 John, chapter 3, starting at verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The second reading comes from Nehemiah 5, and that can be found on page 415. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, 
and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise, so that such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to me, allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew West. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the assistant pastors here at church. I'm here at Kiribilli in the mornings, but most Sunday nights I'm at our 6 p.m. service. So I don't get to come to 7 o'clock very often. So it's great to be here, and I'd love to meet you if I haven't already met you yet. Let's pray, and then we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 5. God, you're worthy of all praise, worthy of all honor. Grow us in our fear of you tonight, and show us and lead us in how to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things I love doing as a pastor here is going along to our church's belonging courses. Our belonging courses we run every few months for people who are new to church. And at each of these courses, Paul always asks people, what is something that struck you about our church? What's something that really struck you since you joined our church? And Over and over again, people say the same answers, and one thing often people say is they were struck by how loving we are, how loving we are, how much we care for one another. Maybe you were struck by that yourself when you first came along to our church. I think it's so great because that's just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Jesus looked not to his own interests, but to the interests of others, sacrificially giving, dying on a cross for us. And so when we're loving, when we're caring, we're being just like Jesus. And as we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, we see Nehemiah is just like that. Nehemiah is a man who is driven by a love for God and a love for others, a care 
for God's people. He's driven by God's praise, God's honour, and driven by a love for the people of God. If you just join us tonight in our series through Nehemiah, basically what we've seen is Nehemiah was in Persia, and he hears about Jerusalem. He hears about God's city and how it's still in ruins. And so he goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild it for God's honour. Last week we saw that as he's doing this, he faces opposition from outside, from the surrounding nations who try and stop his work. This week, what we see in Nehemiah 5 is he faces opposition from inside, from inside the people of God. See, what was going on? The people of God, they, they weren't caring for each other. They weren't loving one another, but doing the exact opposite. Let's look at the story. Nehemiah chapter 5. Look down your Bibles. Chapter 5, verse 1. It begins like this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. The story begins, and there's complaints. Nehemiah's email inbox is filled with complaining emails because there's this outcry. And the outcry isn't about people out there, other nations. The outcry is against fellow Jews, the people of God. What are they complaining about? Well, there's three groups of people who complain that we see. The first group are in verse 2. They're the people who are part of large families. Let's read verse 2. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. I'm from a large family. Uh, When I was growing up, uh, my mum had two giant fridges to feed us all. And I hate to think what her, her grocery bill was every week when she was buying food. Here we have large families, and large families need food, but they're saying, we can't get grain. We can't put food on the plates of our children. Presumably what was happening was the whole city was helping rebuild the walls. Everyone was helping build day and night. And so they didn't have the time that they needed to work the fields to get grain. So they were going hungry. The next group of people that complain are the landowners. Look at verse 3. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. There's clearly a famine going on. And these people, the landowners, they don't have grain either. And so they're so desperate, they're mortgaging their fields. They're mortgaging their property. Such desperation. Look at the next group, verse 4. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. The king in Persia was taxing the Jews. And these people were so poor, they couldn't afford to pay those taxes. I don't know much about finance, but I know that if you have to borrow money to pay your taxes, you're not in a good financial position. These people, they're desperate. No food. Just picture their desperation. But you know, the real tragedy actually isn't the poor people. The real tragedy is the rich Because the rich people are taking advantage of the poor Jews, exploiting them in their time of need. 
we see in verse 7 that they're charging the poor people interest. And then in verse 5, look at what they say in verse 5. Let's read that together. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. These people are so desperate, they've had to sell their children into slavery to get food. It's into slavery to their fellow Jews. They're saying, our kids used to play together in the playground. Our kids used to hang out together after school, and now you've taken my children into slavery just so I can eat. Just so I can eat. These are their own brothers and sisters, fellow Jews. These poor people, they're powerless, they say. We're powerless, no voice, completely robbed of power. Just imagine their distress. You know what? They're doing exactly what God told them not to do. Look up on the screens, Deuteronomy chapter 15. This is what God told his people. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Instead, you're to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. Or Deuteronomy chapter 23. Do not charge your brother interest on silver, food, or anything that can earn interest. Their God has said to them, if there's someone needy in the family of God, don't be stingy, be generous. Don't have a closed hand, have an open hand. Don't charge interest, give freely. And they're doing the exact opposite of what God had called them to do. My siblings and I, we have a tradition. Once a year we go away and we play Monopoly. Um, we love it. And, but Monopoly rips families apart, let's be honest. It's a dangerous game to play. In fact, I told my sister, I said to her, oh, I'm preaching today, I'm going to mention our Monopoly game. And she said, are you going to tell everyone how you always lose? And it's true. I, I mean, when you lose a Monopoly, it's a slow death. It is a slow death. You land on someone else's property, you have to pay them rent. You land on their property again, you have to pay them rent. Eventually, you're so desperate, you have to mortgage one of your properties. Then you land on one of the chance card things and you've got to pay taxes, but you may not be able to afford that, so you have to mortgage more properties. And then slowly, you get so desperate, you lose all bargaining power and you're a total mess and it is a slow death. But if you win Monopoly, that is the best power rush, isn't it? That is so good. Because as people get poorer, you get richer. They land on your stuff. They land on your houses. You take their money and you can build a hotel on that. And then they get more desperate and they need to sell their property. And you can pay whatever you want because you've got all the bargaining power in the world. And it's a wonderful win. It's a great power trip. In the Monopoly game of life, you can picture what's going on here, can't you? The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. 
who were charging interests, exploiting their brothers and sisters, taking advantage. Are you aware of the needs of God's people? Those who are needy in our church family? Are your hands open to them? Or are they closed, tight-fisted? I love uh, hearing stories about our church and people who make food for people in church who are suffering. Or people in our church who are opening their homes and showing radical generosity to people in need. Or people who are showing practical love, practical care to those who are hurting. It's so wonderful. It reminds me of Acts chapter 2, the picture of the early church, selling all they had, sharing their possessions, and the church growing. It's not just about it in our church, though. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ around the whole world, many of them suffering, many of them in ministries that don't have money to continue. Are you aware of their needs? It's not just Christians. I mean, I think... In the Bible, God has commanded us to make our first priority caring for Christians. We're told that in the Scriptures. But we're also told to still care for people outside the family of God. In our world today, there are more people in slavery than any other time in history. In our country, the gap between the rich and poor continues to grow. Does your heart break when you hear things like that? Maybe you're here tonight and you're needy. Maybe you're being exploited, oppressed. It might be in your family, it might be friends, maybe your workplace. Whoever you are, you need to know God hears you and God cares. How does Nehemiah respond? I don't know about you, but I've been convicted this week that often when I see people who are suffering, maybe it's on TV, it's so easy to just change the channel, isn't it? You pass someone who's in need, you just look the other way, I've been convicted I do this all the time. But Nehemiah, he doesn't do that. He hears about these people in need, and what does he do? Look at verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I was very angry. What do you get angry about? I get angry about slow Wi-Fi. That, that gets me angry. I get angry when someone cuts me off in traffic. Most of my anger is is sinful. I think most anger is sinful. But there is an anger which is not sinful. It's an anger about injustice. It's an anger about God's glory. Nehemiah here, he's, he's fired up. He's angry. His heart break. His heart's broken. And look at what he does. Verse 7, he confronts them. Verse 7, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called them together, called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, 
we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Nehemiah says, you're charging them interest. We've just taken them back out of slavery in exile, and now you're selling them to slavery again, economic slavery. What are you doing? He's not afraid of confrontation. He just goes for it. And then he gets to the heart of the problem. He gets to the heart of the problem. You see, in, in 1 Timothy, it says, money isn't so much the problem. It's the love of money. Nehemiah realizes that the problem with the rich here is actually their hearts. It's their hearts. Look at what he says, verse 9. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? They have a heart problem. They're not fearing God. We are made, every single one of us, to serve our Heavenly Father, to worship Him, to praise Him, to adore Him, to obey Him. But these rich Jews, I mean, they probably claimed that they followed God. But their actions showed otherwise. Instead of trusting God, they were trusting money, greed, power. It's so easy for us to do, isn't it? Who do you fear? I think many Christians, they, they say they, they fear God, and yet their actions show different. And we can fear all kinds of things instead of God. But particularly money is a particular danger, isn't it? Instead of trusting God and letting that shape the way we spend our finances, we fear security, the security money brings. Instead of fearing God with our finances, we fear missing out. We want to have the standard of living that other people have. Instead of trusting God, we, we fear the significance that money brings and we crave that, thinking that'll satisfy. But God calls us to be devoted to him with our hearts, to fear him, to adore him. And it leads us to generosity, open-handedness. These rich Jews had it all wrong. And so he calls them to action. In verse 11, he calls them to give it all back. Give back the land, give back the field, give back the vineyards. And he even says, give back the interest. 1% here was probably 1% every month compounded. So it's quite a lot of money. Just imagine, if, for those of you that have a home loan, your bank calls you up and offers to give you back all the interest you've ever paid. Pretty sweet. Nehemiah says, give it all back, even the interest. And what do they do? Look at the end of verse 13. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did what they'd promised. I think this is a great example, isn't it, of repentance. Here you have these rich Jews, and they're confronted with their sin. But they don't just kind of dismiss it. They say sorry, they repent, they change and praise God. 
That's what God calls us all to do. When God challenges us through his word when, or through someone else and we're convicted, he calls us to turn from our sin and to trust him and receive his forgiveness and his transforming grace. Maybe you're here tonight and you, you know God's just been tapping you on the shoulder, pressing on your heart for a while now to just change in one area of your life. Trust me, fear me, change and you've been putting it off. Don't. Perhaps you did tonight and you, you've never turned to God. You, you never turned from your life without him to serving him, fearing him, praising him. Don't put it off. The rich here, they're convicted of their lack of love, convicted of their greed, and they repent. Well, what I love about Nehemiah is he practices what he preaches, doesn't he? Nothing worse than a leader who's a hypocrite. Nehemiah, he's calling the rich to fear God. He's calling the rich to care for others. And he actually models that himself, both in his private life and in his public leadership. And so in verse 14, there's a shift. He zooms out and he talks about his role as governor for 12 years. And he says, I'm practicing what I preach. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until its 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. It seems like on the news every few months, there's another story about a politician who's misusing their allowances. It's often travel allowances, isn't it? You know, some politician who is um, taking a helicopter on a Macca's run or um, you know, taking their kid on a work trip or stopping off at a tropical island on the way back from a business conference, misusing the allowances they've been given. And Nehemiah He's not even misusing the allowances he's been given. He's not even using them in the first place. As governor, he was owed a food allowance. It was his right to claim from the people grain for food. And Nehemiah says, oh, well, the governors before me, they, they took advantage of that. In fact, they took more. Not just a food allowance, they took some wine, thank you very much, some silver, that'd be great. And they were burdening the people these poor people, burdening them, lording it over the people. But Nehemiah, he doesn't want to burden them, and he doesn't even take the food he's owed. Gives up his privileges. Gives up his rights. I think it's a great picture of Christian service. When we serve God at church or wherever, it's not about our status. It's not about our privileges, our position. It 
It's about giving that up in service of others. Christian leadership looks like stacking up chairs. It looks like serving at church when no one else notices. It looks like Paul Dale helping at the election barbecue last Saturday. Busy man, but he, he was serving. That's Christian leadership. Nehemiah models that to us. Gives up all his privileges. Now, in our culture in Australia, where we're all about rights, we're always talking about rights, what we're owed, what our rights are, what leads Nehemiah to give up his rights like that? What would lead and motivate someone to do that? Well, for for Nehemiah, it's exactly what he's been calling the rich people to do. He says in verse 15, it's out of reverence for God. And he says that he doesn't want to burden the people. It's out of love for God's people. Fear of God, love of God's people. Nehemiah is a great example, isn't he? And yet we have a better example. Jesus Christ was owed everything, wasn't he? King of kings, Lord of lords, at God's right hand. And yet he gave that up and became man suffered amongst us, served us, died for us. Philippians chapter 2, it's up on the screen. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You want an example of humble service? Jesus is the perfect example of sacrificial giving. He's the perfect example of having your hands open, not closed, of giving up everything out of love for God's people, of fearing God and wanting to serve him with everything. In Jesus, God has been outrageously generous. You want to know what it looks like to fear God, to serve others, to be sacrificial? Look to our Lord and our Saviour. who look not to his own interests, the interests of others. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Nehemiah and we pray that you would help us to fear you. Help us to walk in your ways out of reverence for you. Lord, grow us in our love for others. Grow us in our care for others. Help us to be open-handed, not tight-fisted. We pray for people here tonight who are broken, needy, exploited, oppressed. Lord, be with them and help us to care for them. And thank you for Jesus, for his perfect example of love, sacrifice, care for you and your people. Help us by your spirit to be like him. Amen.